You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. They wanted a midterm where voters were mad at the incumbent president, where their party was ascended. The type of congressional election political analysts and congressmen call a wave, which is clearly more than just about the individual member of Congress. And it's more about the nation as a whole. These congressmen won 14 more elections over the years and embedded themselves as moderate Democrats in fairly safe seats. No one ever considered that these seats would be threatened until last Tuesday. Both of them had been elected in the midterm of 1982. This was Reagan's first midterm, and they seemed invulnerable, but this was quite a midterm in the House elections. A shellacking, President Obama said in a humble post-midterm press conference. Mr. Bush called his 2006 midterm a thumping. At least presidents are being more honest about their losses. Lyndon Johnson had said after the 1966 midterm, the other parties improved its position. Eisenhower said after 1954, nothing stronger than I was disappointed that our party didn't do better. So we're getting at least more honest uh, descriptions about what's going on in these midterms from presidents as they make their post-midterm press conference and sort of fall on their swords. 2010, that midterm is shaping up to be a historic one. As it turns out, you have to go back to 1938 when Franklin Roosevelt's Democrats lost 71 seats in the House. Prior to that, you'd have to go back to 1894 during that Depression era, not the Great Depression, but the Panic of 1893 and the Depression that followed, when Republicans picked up 123 seats from Grover Cleveland's defeated Democrats. Prior to that, four years prior, Democrats had won 90-plus seats in the 1890 elections, when a backlash had grown over spending in Congress and a tariff that was passed. That makes it quite a historic midterm. And one of the other noticeable factors about this 2010 midterm is there's a bit of a blue dog hunt going on. What is a blue dog? Well, I guess that's a term that separates the mice from the men and women in terms of political knowledge, whether you're an insider or whether you're a member of the public that doesn't follow politics too much. And blue dogs are those kind of moderate Democrats. Where does the name come from? Not sure. I mean, you know that uh, painting from the guy with the in New Orleans uh, with you know the features a uh, blue dog. He's got a gallery on uh, Royal Street in New Orleans, and actually he's drawing pictures of his dog that had passed away ten years before, and he woke up with a dream of the dog, totally in blue, and started painting him. But That's not important in the political context. Uh, For some reason, the Democrats who are more moderate are called 
the Blue Dogs. Now, in the past, during the Reagan era, they were called Bo Weevil Democrats. In the Clinton days, uh, there were Blue Dogs and also some called New Democrats. Some of these guys are not close to the leadership at all, and they make a habit of voting uh, against the Democratic leadership, but they'll vote for, say, tax cuts, defense spending, and for deficit reduction. But they might also back something like, you know, a social security uh, program or, or things everybody can agree with. For In many cases, these type of Democrats do nothing more than vote the Democrat for speaker. So you look at a fellow like Gene Taylor of Mississippi, who was elected in 1992. And actually, in this election, he wasn't even going to do that favor to the Democratic Party, if you will. He had pledged to his voters that he would not vote for Nancy Pelosi as speaker. Now, by the way, that is a little bit of a different statement than saying I won't vote for a Democrat for speaker. He's saying I won't vote for Nancy Pelosi for speaker. So if it did come down to the Democrats needing Gene Taylor's vote and he was elected, well, they might get Steny Hoyer or something to become speaker as a compromise and Gene Taylor wouldn't have violated his pledge or he'd have to go out there and break his pledge. That's not likely. Uh, or you would have had a Republican speaker in some type of coalition between Republicans and Blue Dog Democrats. That's why a couple months back there was a congressman who had indicated we already won the midterm because there's going to be a coalition now uh, to upset uh, Nancy Pelosi, you know, even if he just took the reasonably close seats. Now, after you've won 60-plus seats, I mean, you know, it's not even close. Gene Taylor of Mississippi, I was just talking about, one of them that went down in defeat. So we never got to test who he would vote for for speaker. He voted for little else that the Democrats wanted. So did many of these uh, blue dogs. He voted against health care. Voting against health care proved to be a losing strategy in the 2010 midterm. If some Democrats who were in tough districts were using it as a bit of a shield, Stephanie Herseth Sandlin of South Dakota Jim Adler of New Jersey, Brad Ellsworth, Baron Hill of Indiana, they found out that voting against Obama's health care didn't separate them enough from President Obama when there was voter outrage. That reduced the blue dog numbers, uh, by my count, from a 58 uh, to possibly 44. And two people in the leadership of this blue dog coalition, that is because both Sandlin and Baron Hill were on the leadership uh, team. They were co-chairs, one for administration, the other for policy. So quite a uh, hit for the Blue Dog Coalition and the Democratic Party. The second group that was targeted by Republicans, and with some ease, were the 2008 winners. These congressmen ran with President Obama in 2008 on his coattails, if you will. Republicans like Alan Grayson who made a bit of a name for himself in his vocal attacks on Republicans and was certainly targeted uh, for that. So those 08ers went down in defeat. Another group is the 06ers, those Democrats who were elected in 2006 in, in Bush's second midterm, where the Iraq war was the particularly big issue. Another issue was you know, corruption in Congress, Jack Abramoff, and, and those type of things. And there was voter anger about that. 
Now it's four years later. The 06ers, like Zach Space of Ohio, had been elected, re-elected, but they still didn't have the type of staying power in their districts that long-term congressmen had. Many of those went down in defeat in the 2010 election. So adding the other Blue Dogs, 08ers, and 2006ers, you have almost all the wins on Tuesday night. To hear Frank Lutz tell it, in 1994, he was not only feeling voter outrage, he almost felt the group of 31 undecided voters he was talking to wanted to take a swing at him. After the three-way elections of 1992, which saw a Democrat in the White House with less than a majority of the popular vote, Lutz was a hot commodity. He had been Ross Perot's pollster, and Perot as a candidate had tapped into the voter anger of that time. By 1994, Lutz had signed up with the Congressional Republicans, who wanted a big midterm win. But he couldn't get this group of undecided voters to tell him what they wanted his clients to do. I tried to ask him if they wanted Republicans to make a promise. They laughed. Promises had been made before and broken. I tried the word pledge. Did you want my clients to make a pledge? Or do you want politicians to make a pledge to you? They scowled. I tried offering them food, Lutz said. Finally, finally, one of them said, I need something that can be written down. Something that will show what they will do. Thus came the contract with America. Well, Lutz was not the one who came up with that name, only the idea that something had to be in writing. A specific set of promises that the Republicans, as a congressional a team of congressional candidates under a potential speaker, Newt Gingrich, were making to the American people that they would do if elected. One of the biggest observers of the tactic, although not the politics of this particular group of people, was Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton felt strongly that midterm elections needed to be nationalized. Presidential elections have a national feeling, and the party that could nationalize a midterm election would win. Of course, since this group of Republicans was using this tactic against Clinton, it's little surprise that Clinton felt the power of the tactic. Lutz was a bit dismissive of the latest version of a contract with America. This was a pledge with America, which John Boehner and the congressional Republicans running in 2010 made, which didn't list you know, specific items that were going to be accomplished, but more general principles. There were a few items like you know, refusing to let Gitmo prisoners be tried in the U.S. mainland and repealing health care reform. But Lutz, who had been an architect of the contract with America, found a problem with the pledge to America that Boehner and the Republicans came up with. First of all, it used a forbidden word, pledge. Nobody liked that word. Secondly, while Frank Lutz had removed specifically Democrat and Clinton from the contract with America, because the undecided voters didn't want to hear about partisanness, they didn't want to hear about blame. The pledge to America in 2010, Lutz felt, ill-advisedly, contained the words Obama and Democrat over and over again. 
And instead of a specific set of principles written down, it was vague. Lutz didn't exactly say it would be ineffective, but he did point out some of the contrasts with the successful contract with America. Yet, it may have been the right move if, for no other reason than, the contract, the writing down the thing on paper and calling it a contract, had been done before in 94. Media would have zoomed in on a contract redo. And the contract listed items that Republicans or any candidates running would later be judged on. Invariably, media and certainly the opposition Democrats could have pointed to many of a contract's provisions and called them on which ones were not accomplished. Certainly this happened with the contract with America. Several of the items on the contract were never passed into law, although Republicans will argue each one got a vote in the new House, but that's not what they promised in the contract. But each one got a vote in the House. Midterm voters found the message appealing, this pledge to America. No surprise, as more than 60% of those going to vote felt the country was on the wrong track. Never good for the incumbent White House or the incumbent Congressional Party. Only 45% felt Obama was doing a good job gallop rating, and 53% of midterm voters had an unfavorable view of the Democratic Party. Obama's number was very close to Bush in 2006 and Clinton in 1994 after they got beat in a midterm election. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Given the sorry poll numbers for the incumbent party, it's not surprising that some new faces will be joining our Congress next year. Stephen Fitchner was a cotton farmer from the aptly named Frog Jump, Tennessee. He had no college degree and never held any elected public office. The slogan of this farmer, Plow Congress. He beat six opponents in the primary and impressed Republican leaders. And easily won the general election. He'll join John Runyon of New Jersey, a former lineman for the Philadelphia Eagles, and reality TV star, from MTV's Real World Boston, Sean Duffy. Several women Republicans, uh, Jamie Herrera, Renee Elmers, Christy Noam, will be joining the uh, Republican caucus, and the son of the former vice president, Ben Quayle. What helped to propel these candidates was voter anger, but also a helpful amount of campaign cash from outside groups. The cavalry came over the hill just when we needed them, said the RNC congressional campaign chair. American Crossroads, associated with Karl Rove, 60-plus, a conservative alternative to the AARP. The Chamber of Commerce also raised money for Republican candidates. These groups had some impact, perhaps in helping especially defeat some of those stalwarts who could raise some cash, thinking particularly of the Blue Dogs I mentioned, or Ike Skelton from Missouri, who was a very formidable player and saw that some of his opponents were receiving money from these groups. In the end, the midterm pattern held. I made a comment on the Facebook site recently that the midterms are the ultimate coalition of the willing. Who is willing to show up in the polls in the off-year elections, right? We all have jobs. You have vacations you're possibly taking. Uh, you got kids. Kids got soccer practice. Who's showing up to the polls? You remember it with the presidential election. With midterms often, you got to have a reason. The coalition of the willing to vote. And So who shows up in these midterms takes the country in a sense and the environment in Washington changes by virtue of who shows up. Only 9 to 11 percent, depending on estimates, of the youth vote came out to vote in the 2010 elections. The number was 18 percent in 2008 with Barack Obama running at the top of the ticket. 13 percent in the midterms of 2006. So it was even down from that midterm. 24%, this is very telling, 24% of the midterm voters were seniors over 65. And voters over 65 were a very different type of voter, the majority that showed up in 2008. They were backing Republicans in this midterm by 61%. And to put that in some type of context for what it did, These senior voters, over 65, give a 33% margin. The Republican Senate candidate in New Hampshire, 
to Ron Kirk, the Republican Senate candidate in Illinois. They gave a 22% margin. And they were the only group in Delaware who gave a, mar- a majority margin, 11%, to Christine O'Donnell, the troubled Tea Party candidate who would end up losing that race. But she won with voters over 65. Black and Hispanic voters in this midterm, back Democrats, though at lower numbers in, than in 2008, and both those demographics were decidedly down from 2008. But what about Obama's star power, his charisma? What of the full stadiums of two years ago? What about the internet tools that were to change politics forever? Obama being the first president who had a giant million person email list who could get a message out to an electorate-sized group. None of that overcame the old midterm pattern of general apathy. When Obama, Biden, Tim Kaine, whoever, sent out emails to those groups, many disappointed Dens ignored them, hit the unsubscribe, and stayed home. Midterms can lead to revolutions in American politics. 1994 changed the landscape dramatically. 2006 may have forced the issue on Iraq and put an end to the more creative Bush policies. But it's hard to say that 2006 really changed the landscape like 94 did. 1974, that midterm, brought the most liberal Congress in the 20th century, or at least since the 30s. Speaking of that, 1934 brought on a second New Deal in which Franklin Roosevelt had new liberal members of Congress pass Social Security and other pieces of legislation. The second hundred days. This midterm is an interesting one because it's a dual result. A stave in the Senate and an absolute bone-crushing hit, a shellacking, as the president said, in the House. So what happened? Well, since midterm turnout is lower, how do we judge this election? Do we value the mandate here less? Do we listen less to what voters said? Do we trump numbers with recency? In other words, do I take Obama's 53% of 130 million, that mandate that he got two years ago as the correct mandate? Or do I take today's mandate of 53% of 75 to 80 million people voting in a midterm as a mandate because it's less people, but two years more recent? To me, it's a circular and philosophical question. You could debate it for hours and hours and hours. Do I take normally Democratic Pennsylvania, which went Republican this year in the Senate as the bellwether, or do I take normally Republican Colorado, which went Democrat this year as the bellwether? It's accurate to say that the Founding Fathers had an emphasis on shared power and also an emphasis on frequent elections. And some of that is what leads to the result today. You get a bit of a crossed mandate. Most likely, some difference will be split. Obama can't get everything he wants. He certainly can't engage in a lot of high spending now. 
But the Republicans clearly are not going to get all of what they want to do either. The Congresses who took office in 47, 95, 70, 83 in the 20th century all saw those presidents reelected despite midterm victories in the president's first midterm. How will this go? Will this be a snap Congress? In other words, will it be like the Congress that Truman had in 46? Got a Republican Congress, they lasted two years, and control went right back to Democrats. Will it be a 40-year reign, as the Democrats who took over in 1954 experienced? Will it be a moderate-sized reign, like the Republicans in 1994 experienced? Obviously, 2012 will have a lot more to do with the top of the ticket, who's running for president on the Republican side and how Obama is perceived at that point. It'll have a lot more to do with the top of the ticket than the House races. But how Obama's doing is going to be some factor in whether the House is taken back. A couple factors to look at. In some cases, some of these seats that Republicans took were taking back from the last wave, Democrats winning in 06 and 08. And those are going to be tough bottles to take back. But you do have a number of seats that were occupied by long-standing blue dog Democrats. And they have names in their districts. I'm thinking of Gene Taylor. I'm thinking of Ike Skelton. I'm thinking of others. Not all of them are going to want to run again, but some will run again, and they will be formidable candidates in a year where there isn't, perhaps, a Republican wave going on. Perhaps you're not going to get a snap election. There's a pretty good margin now Republicans have in the House, but uh, you might see some erosion in a couple of years, depending on how things go. Look at the slogans of just two of these candidates. Ben Quayle, the son of Vice President Dan Quayle, had to fight it out a bit in his Republican primary. And one of the things he said is that he wasn't a typical politician, despite who his father was. And he was going to kick the hell out of the people in Washington. Kick the hell out of the people in Washington. Stephen Fitchner, as we mentioned, said he was going to plow Congress. People say a lot of things in various campaigns to get elected, but it's difficult to see how a Congress that wants to come in kicking and plowing, how that's going to shape up with an incumbent president. It looks like we're going to have a confrontation. This is sort of the autopsy of this election, and obviously all eyes now are already on 20, Calvary, already on the presidential election. There's really going to be a lot of the story in between. It's almost like jumping ahead to the last chapter of the book, is which both political analysts are doing. But I'm going to join in a little because the next podcast is going to be about the relationship between president and Congress after midterms. And of course, we're going to talk about, like everybody else is, the 94 midterm. But we're going to talk about a lot more. I want to thank you for listening. Website's myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. The archive is 1499. If you like the program, I encourage you to go there. You can download as many episodes uh, as you want of programs that we've recorded since 2006 when the show started on a wide variety of topics. I have gotten the question of what form does this archive take? Now, because we don't have a deal with iTunes to sell anything, I only have the arrangement to give out this podcast for free. I'm not down there as a, as a vendor. It's on a separate system. It's a website. Then you get access to the website when you pay. And then you can take the MP3 files from the website and move it over to your iTunes. And I don't know the exact procedure for other devices, but it, 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 I've, I've 
witness so far that uh, it hasn't been very difficult to use. So encourage you to get that if you're interested in the program. And if you like the program, tell someone about it. Thanks for listening. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.